we finished up talking about the uh, about the arguments for the limited atonement, and I wanted to do our best now to present the case for limited atonement. And I, I think I said this just as we were winding up last session. Does one's view of a doctrine must come from scripture, from the scriptures? It will be necessary in this section to present only the scriptures which seem to present unlimited atonement. Now, Robert Raymond's objection to the unlimited atonement is the phrase all men is not a self-defining expression. It must always be interpreted within the universe of the discourse in which it occurs. And that is certainly the case. If I use the word all in reference to the members of this class, I am certainly not speaking of all in the world. Can, you got, got a problem? Find what page? What page? Um, let's look on this. It's 57 on my page. 57, there you are. Okay. And that is, that is certainly the case. All students in ST3 is not all Maranatha Baptist Bible College or Maranatha Baptist Seminary students, nor is it all the population of Watertown, nor all the population of the state of Wisconsin, nor of the United States, nor of the world. We understand that. But that still does not change the fact. And he, he, uh, he does some, he does some thinking here, and we need to, we need to see his full, let's, let's just look at his full statement, or his full, uh, presentation of his case here. Uh, it must be, it must always be interpreted within the universe of the discourse in which it occurs. In other words, it's got to be interpreted in context. So we understand that. Alright. Then he proceeds to survey several passages which he says are not critical to the present discussion in which all is used in a limited sense. Great. That may be true, and we're not going to examine the validity of his argument in relation to the passages he cites. I will take that at face value. In dealing with the passages that speak of the world, Raymond cites B.B. Warfield to argue essentially that world refers to the elect and that all men in the world are not equally the objects of God's love. Now what I need to do, and I have Raymond, and I need to go into Raymond and see where he's citing Warfield. And on my computer, I have the, com in this wonderful electronic age, I have the complete works of B.B. Warfield, and I can go in and get Warfield. I'm not a bit surprised that Warfield uh, would say that. More popularly, more commonly, I'm going to guess that at one time or another, some of you have picked up one of the books of Arthur W. Pink. Have you ever read Pink's commentaries? Okay. Pink does some great stuff. Uh, and then he is given to fully to fancy. His little, his little book, Gleanings in Genesis, not, not little, it's not so big. And he does some great stuff with his introduction and survey to Genesis. Then he gets to the very last chapter, and he sets Joseph up as a type of Christ. And he cites 110 ways in which Joseph is a type of Christ. I want to tell you what. Uh, you are reading a lot of stuff in if you if you come up with 110 ways Joseph is a type of Christ. Uh, I'm not saying this to dispute think he may well be right. All I'm going to say is I'm not convinced of it. I'm not sure that Joseph is a type of Christ. Now, Isidek certainly is, and we know that because Scripture says so. And when Scripture shows that Old Testament sacrifices were, as Paul says in Colossians 2, foreshadowings of Christ, and Christ is the body. Then we know that the Word of God is giving us these pictures of Christ. You follow me? When the Bible says it, we're on safe ground. We ought not to go creating things. 
I'm going to guess that Flack and Byers, having been in other courses of mine, have heard this story. So indulge me, will you please? And I don't want to be unnecessarily repetitive, but it bears, it bears telling at this point. We had a guy come to Central Seminary years ago. I was a, you know it was years ago because it's when I was a student there. And he preached in chapel as a guest. And he preached on the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, total gold mine. And great truth about Christ to be studied and dug out of there. This fellow started out and said two things that were right. He said that Isaiah 53 is a poem. Got it. That it's five stanzas long. Got it. From there he was off to the races. He read Genesis into the first stanza, Exodus into the second, Leviticus into the third, Numbers into the fourth, and Deuteronomy into the fifth. And nobody ever figured out for what reason. And you're sitting there like you've heard me tell this story before too. And somebody, after it was over, slipped up to Richard Clearwaters, our, our seminary president, and said, Doc, where did he get that? And Clearwaters looked around to make sure there weren't too many people looking. Doc was left-handed. He goes, he sucked it out of his phone. <laughs> and you will read commentaries where the guy pretty obviously had his thumb in his mouth. Okay, so if you ever hear me say that some commentator sucked something out of his thumb, now you know where that, where I, where I get it. One of those things, you don't have to write that down, that just sticks. <laughs> you understand? So anyway, and I hope I don't suck anything out of my thumb when I'm trying to work with you folks. But anyway, Anyway, we have to be very careful. But Pink, in his, either, I think it's his book on the sovereignty of God, has a whole appendix on John 3.16 in which he simply tries to argue that all doesn't mean all. And that all in John 3.16 refers to the world of the elect and not to the entire world. Okay? So that's that's what, what Raymond is trying to argue here. And I say at the top of page 58 that his thesis does not change the fact that Scripture does use the word all in reference to all men as well. This is especially true in relation to the extent of Christ's death. Scripture describes the universal extent of the atonement and the universal offer of the gospel. I think we have to say those two things together. And uh, this is representative scripture. I, I guess I can say it's fairly comprehensive, but it's, it's representative anyway. And have, I don't know if I have said it in here, this I'm not even going to, if I apologize for repeating myself, I'll apologize for repeating a story. I'm not going to apologize for repeating something that has to do with the scripture. If I've ever, if I've ever done this before, uh, it's just good to get it again. Isaiah 53, 6. And I think on the face of it, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all whoever who are like sheep and are sinners are the ones whose iniquity was laid on the Lord. That looks pretty universal just by the statement of it, doesn't it? How many of you have been or are in Hebrew? Any Hebrew students in there? One? Okay. Two? Who else? I attend the class. You attend the class. Sorry. It's taking you. You're not taking it. Okay. Hang with it, guys. When you get it, it's a lot of fun to work with. But Isaiah 53, 6 is a, and do I want to call it an ellipsis? Do I want to call it an inclusio? Isaiah 53, 6 is a forceful statement in its own. And you Hebrew brethren, go, go look at it. Because it starts and ends with the same wording. 
Here's how you would read it. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Starts and ends with all of us. And all of us, like sheep, went astray. And then he gets to the selfless, the self-centered nature of sin. <coughs> Excuse me. When he says, we have turned everyone to his own way. If you can go back to homardiology and bring forward how we talked about the essence of sin being self-will and self-nature, Isaiah dumps it in right there. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Everyone. To his, his own way, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Just a, it, it's a great, great statement anywhere it appears. And right, right there in the middle of the, of the 53rd of Isaiah, it's, it's just more of that rich, great truth. John 3.16, uh, the plain statement. Turn to John 6 with me, would you please? And we're not going to solve all of the problems in John 6. Certainly not this morning, and maybe never. And I do not, I do not want to skew And somewhere in this discussion, I ought to say it, so I'll say it right here, probably say it again before we're out of here. There are series of books, there are numbers of books that people have written trying to solve and resolve the sovereignty-human responsibility tension. I haven't read one of them that, to my mind, is satisfactory. I just don't think you can do it. I think you have to say, <clears throat> Scripture says things about sovereignty and, and election. I think Scripture says things about free will and the universal offer of the gospel. And I take it all and believe it all. I just, I, I, at least I haven't been able to get past that. I've got the electronic books. There's an attorney got a book out there, and he's the last word and got it all solved. And there are. Uh, there are theologians who've done it, and uh, nobody's fixed. Dave Hunt wrote his book, What Love Is This? I don't know if some of you maybe have, have read that one. And uh, he quotes the Arminians, the man can go lost and never refutes it. And then James White wrote a book, and the title of that one was The Potter's Freedom. And it's a very, very strong Calvinistic book. I read yeah. it. And then they decided they could make some money selling a book together. So White and 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 Dave uh, Hunt wrote a book in which they wrote their chapters and responded to each other. And I didn't buy it. A buddy of mine sent it to me. And I told him, I said, I'm going to read it because you were kind enough to give it to me. I said, I don't need to read it. And I can write a review of that book before I ever crack the cover. And he said, oh, and I said, yeah, I'll tell you what the review is. It's two sentences. Dave Hunt is still an Arminian, and James White is still a hyper-Calvinist. And they talk past each other for 300 pages, and that's when I got all done. If I'd have written a review, those are the two sentences I'd have written. And um, that's, I mean, I, I, I read each of them, and I knew, I knew what was coming. And so... Uh, I, it's one that I was so smart that I figured that out. But anyway, John 6, young people, there is, you cannot read John 6 without coming out with a perplexity. You cannot read John 6 without seeing the tension between sovereignty and man's responsibility. Take a look at John 6, 37, would you please? And it really seems like the, the whole tension is right in that one verse. All that the Father giveth me will come unto me. And him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. 
And, and Jesus, Jesus is saying there, there are some whom the Father has given me. Take a, take a quick look, will you please, at John 17. And in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus, Jesus says that same thing. Look at John 17, too. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The Father clearly knows who's going to be saved. You can't read that verse without looking and saying there's got to be some form of unconditional election taught in Scripture. Now, whether you understand it or not, that's the that's another story. But you can't walk away from Scripture without saying the Bible says something about that. So you've got that. And then come with me down here, and I've got uh, 47 through uh, 51 all... Written out here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Now, even though he has said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What does he say here in these verses? If any man eat of this bread, for whom does he say he will give his flesh? For whom does he say he will suffer? For the life of the world. So you've got both the sovereign purpose of God, the divine knowledge of God, that some have been given to the Son, and at the same time, I'm going to give my life, my flesh, for the life of the world, if any man come, he can be saved. So uh, Lord Jesus just laid it out there, and, and uh, you've got to look at John 6 and just say it's a it is, a, it is one of those tension passages where the scripture sets up this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we discover the tension there and deal with it. Then you have Romans 5 and verse 6, and we talked about that when I was answering Raymond's use of Romans 5, 8. But when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't look like there are any ungodly who are left out of that. <laughs> In this great passage, and it's so important because it's, it becomes one of the great missions passages in the New Testament. Romans 10, and we can all quote 9 and 10. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But think of, I've, I've got 12 and 13 here. But, but think of what you get in Romans 10, 11, 12, and 13. With, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, 10. For the scripture saith, verse 11, just set this up in these, 13, in these three verses. Notice how it starts. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now look at it, verse 11. How does it start? Who can believe on the Lord? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall not be ashamed. Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. How does it end? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's in the middle? Look at the middle of it. No difference between the Jew and the Greek. The gospel 
crosses, hungry lines of ethnicity, citizenship, whatever you want to call it. <coughs> then notice the same Lord over how many? All. He is rich, rich unto how many that call upon him? All. Whosoever, verse 11, whosoever, verse 13, Jew and Greek, verse 12, all, verse 12, all, verse 12. You cannot get past it. The offer of the gospel is universal. So then you get to, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not, and how, sh how shall they preach except they be sent? How shall they hear without a preacher? What have I missed? I think I've got it all. And then he comes to Romans 10, 16, speaking of Israel. They've not all obeyed the gospel. But you've got that, that universal offer of the gospel. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And uh, this is the, the passage that opens up uh, the First Timothy 2 section on worship and on life in the local church. All I need to do is, is give you verse 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who will have... Let me get it right. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. And by the way, there again, there is a passage talking about the whole human race inciting Psalm 8 that God gave the word mankind the dominion over the creation. And yet we do not now see all things put under man's feet. And we read, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Was it not the other day that we made a reference to 2 Peter 2.1 somewhere in, uh, in our class discussion where Peter talks about these false teachers who will be among you who will privately bring in damnable heresies even denying the word that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. But we're told of Christ's death for those who deny him. Even these false, te these false teachers clearly are not saved. But Peter seems to indicate that the death of Christ was sufficient to save them. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But his own suffering to us were not willing that any should perish. But all should come to repentance. First John 2, 1 and 2. Little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Revelation 2, 22, 17. The last invitation in the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take the fountain of the water of life freely. So it seems that the first statements of Scripture, literally interpreted and taken apart of unsubstantiated presuppositions, indicates that Christ died for all men, and that God makes a legitimate offer of salvation to all men. Now, I use this. <clears throat> the next section, because, because as you are aware, John, John Calvin is at the heart of the discussion, and one of the systems is called Calvinism. And I have to tell you that the study of Calvin is controversial. 
I'm going to make reference to a man, and I've got him, I've got him footnoted here, and I want to tell you a little bit about him after I, uh, after I do it. But, but uh, R.T. Kendall observes concerning Calvin's comments on Isaiah 53.12 and Hebrews 9.28. Both verses use the word many. Calvin, in both places, stresses that the many for whom Christ died really means all. In both places, he also refers to Romans 5.15, which mentions many, but it too means all, Calvin says. What you have to do would probably be get into Calvin's institutes, and by the way, aren't the institutes part of the Logos system? I think, I know I've got him on Logos. I don't think I had to buy an extra. I think I I think that's part of the of the Logos system. And the, the beauty of it is it's data researchable. How many, How many of you read, read anything, done, done any research for a paper in Cal? In the institutes. Anybody? Research in the institutes. You will you find you will find things there that to which you will say a hearty amen and you will find things there that you will bat your eyes at. The, the beauty, beauty of Calvin on Logos is again it's a, it's a it's a uh, it's a data searchable base, and what you can use the you can use the index and go to the appropriate section in in, in Calvin. And Calvin's commentaries, you know, the institutes were written when he was a very young man, revised over his lifetime. The commentaries were written later, and I think reflect folks say a more mature Calvin. Other thing, thing I have to tell you, and in the interest of full disclosure, let me tell you, I have, have R.T. Kendall's book, Calvin and English Calvinism, 1649. R.T. Kendall was himself an interesting character. Uh, that, that book is his Ph.D. dissertation, redone for public consumption. I don't remember if he did it at Oxford or Cambridge, but it's it's a British... High class PhD. So, so it is first class legitimate scholarly work. It is absolutely detested by the classic Calvinist Reformed theologians. And Calvin, or Calvin, Kendall followed Martin Lloyd Jones as pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London. That's the church that Jim Campbell Morgan pastored at one time. E.B. Martin Lloyd Jones pastored it. R.T. Kendall pastored it. R.T. Kendall was followed by a charismatic, and people believe Kendall really set it up for the charismatic to come there. So Kendall was was uh, interesting from that standpoint. And when we get into uh, <coughs> when we get into um, some further statements, statements. We'll, we'll, we'll see Kendall when we get into perseverance and security as a saint, we'll meet Kendall again. So we'll see more about him there. And then some strong quotes Calvin's commentary on 1 John 2 2. I, don't, I have not gotten into Calvin's commentary to find the passage there. So I'm trusting strong Calvin correctly. Christ, Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world, and in the goodness of God is offered unto all men without distinction, is his blood being shed, not for a part of the world only, but for the whole human race. Although in the world nothing is found worthy of the favor of God, yet he holds out the propitiation to the whole world, since without exception he summons all to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than the world unto hope. But, but you will also find statements in Calvin's commentaries that look very limited at all. So you're going to find you're going to find great debate about Calvin. That's what I'm that's what I'm saying. But uh, I want I want to get that information to you anyway. Right. right. Let's, Let's qualify this, and that concludes it. And then we're ready to start with the Ordo Salutis. We are heart into it now. Right. right. Qualifying remarks. Though the scriptures teach that Christ died for all men, that does not mean that all will be saved. 
and the statements of Mark 16, 15, and 16, John 3, 18, and 36, 1 John 5, 12, other scriptures clearly teach that some will believe on Christ and others do not. First John 5, 12, you remember, he that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son hath not life. It's just that plain is an in or out situation. The biblical teaching is that men receive a legitimate offer of the gospel, and that they are responsible for their reception or their rejection of Christ. First, First Timothy 4.10 And we've quoted this before, before I think, but let's get it here. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we, we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, men especially of those that believe. We're on, We're on solid, solid biblical ground in concluding that the gospel is sufficient to save all, but efficient only for those who believe. Let me say Right, right here again, again. One, one more time, that, that means that the offer of the gospel is a legitimate offer. And, and there is nothing about offering salvation to men with his fingers crossed behind his back. Augustus Strong opens his discussion of this subject with a statement that provides a succinct conclusion for ours. The scriptures represent the atonement as having been made for all men and as sufficient for the salvation of all. Not the atonement, therefore, is limited, but the application of the atonement through the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is principle of a universal atonement, but a special application of it to the elect. We must interpret such passages as, and these are election passages that he deals with. Asserting, asserting the special efficacy of the atonement in the case of the elect, and also such passages as 2 Peter 2, 1, 1 John 2, 2, 2 Timothy 2, 6, 4, 10, Titus 2, 11, asserting that the death of Christ is for all. It is clearly efficient, effective, whatever word you want to put on it, only to those who put their faith in Christ. Scripture seems to be just, just as clear that it is just, just as clearly sufficient for all who will believe. Now, I have not solved all the problems. With my tongue in my cheek, I can say we're on page 61 of 150 pages, and I've got to have at least that much time to solve all the problems. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, that is the, the best, best I can do with the subject of the limited, limited atonement. Questions, questions comments? What place you want to go with this? Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking to, to take the view that the blood of Christ is not sufficient almost limits God's power in the sense that he's not powerful enough mm -hmm. for him to have been. And, and, and the answer that you would get from one who holds that position and that Robert Raymond would give is simply this. We do not deny at all the power of God. We do not deny the omnipotence of God. We do not deny the sovereignty of God. We simply say this is the way God chose to work. And then James White, who I do believe is a hyper-Calvinist. And there, there aren't many around, and I don't want to, I don't want to throw that label around loosely. But I want to be very, very careful about that. And there's a lot commendable about James White. But I having having read the Potter's Freedom and having read the White Hunt debate book. He's he's the closest guy other than John Gill that I've read who who is. And the thing again that I think qualifies hyper Calvinism is that you cannot make 
can't give an invitation, you can't urge sinners to be saved. All you can do is preach the gospel because you do not know who the elect are. Well, uh, I mean, just go read Ezekiel. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Just come on. Yes, sir. Who cares if you urge sinners to be saved and not any saved in our left? Well, that's I, I'm just telling you where where these guys are where these guys come from, and and they would they would affirm that God in His sovereignty has the right to do whatever how He wants to do it, and we would meet Him on something of common ground and say, Almighty God is sovereign. Scripture clearly teaches that. And scripture clearly teaches that everything he does is consistent with his own character. And we would argue that he makes a legitimate offer of the gospel. And that we are under commission to make known that message. It seems like this whole argument, like, it really has no effect on, you know, whether you believe in election or the sovereignty of God or whatever, but the whole the whole point of it is what do you think about the character of God? Listen, there are there are a whole there are a whole series of ramifications to it. Yes. Yes. And some of them want to stake out the territory. And listen, let me let me tell you that when you get to extreme shaling You look at where Clark Pinnock went. And Clark Pinnock is now dead. Greg Boyd is another one. John Sanders is the other one of the three. And there are others, but those are the three poster boys <coughs> for the open theism view. And they have demeaned the character of God. Here is this old boy sitting on a throne, and I am not speaking of our God that way. I am, I am, I guess, caricaturizing what they are saying. But literally, they would say that God is waiting to find out what mankind is going to do in certain circumstances. And when you start down the Arminian path, it is not inevitable that you're going to end up there. John Wesley never, ever did. You follow me? I, and I don't want to say it's inevitable, but I'm saying that when you let that run, that's where it's going to come out. And that's why I tried to be so definitive much earlier in this course. When you start with that prevenient grace that as a gift of God's grace, God gives to every man enablement, and every man's able to, to respond to God in his own by that gracious provision of God. Uh, you are into non-biblical stuff there, and Arminianism has to fail at that point. It has to. And, and so if, if you're going to ask me what I am, and you know, type, type myself, or more than tell you that I am Calvinistic or whatever, I'm going to start out by telling you what I am not. And clearly, I am not Arminian. And you can't, you can't go anywhere with Arminianism. And so that I, I, I think you, I think you have to have that nailed down. And, and then gladly, again, I, I'm not talking about anything forced here. I think as believers, we come to the place where we are gladly, willingly, submissive to the authority of Scripture. And that's just, I think it's just the place where we, where we have to be. Yes, sir. Um, I heard in um, a podcast I was listening to this year, um, saying God has the right to command that of man, to command that which is impossible apart from any other trait. And I, I agree. And if, once you 
the simple command to repent mm-hmm. is not possible unless God intervenes. And that's a that's a view that is very humbling to me. And, and, and listen, see, look at a fellow on Mars Hill who could have at that point been preaching for his life. He was certainly not there as a welcome guest lecturer. You follow me? He wasn't there as a rude scholar. Well, he passed over as a rude scholar. Thus, times of this ignorance, God weeped that. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The same brilliant apostle is going to say, No man speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus a curse. And no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And folks, that is a thing we have, I mean, that is a, I guess what I have to say is that is a piece of foundation that has to be laid in bedrock in our thinking uh, have any of you ever been around a construction project enough to know what driving piles is all about? Have you ever been over a bridge where they're rebuilding a bridge and you hear this horrible noise and you see this thing whamming and you hear that wham, wham, wham. And they're driving down through soft dirt with this with this steel. And when, when it talks about pile driving, uh, they, they drive that steel down to where they hit solid so they can pour concrete and way down below the surface of the water, uh, they can pour concrete that's going to hold this bridge in perpetuity or for a very, very long time. And you have to pile drive it. Excuse me, that's what I'm, that's what I'm after. Uh, how, many, how many of you have been to Ground Zero? You've got some thought of how deeply the foundations for those World Trade Center buildings were laid, did you not? You follow me? And you've got to have that foundation down there, that the Spirit of God must do that convicting work when anyone is ever going to come to Christ. And thank God it happens in the lives of kids. Thank God it happens in the lives of adults. But we dare not preach the gospel in our own strength we must preach in utter dependence upon the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to do its work. This is theology proper. And and that's one problem I have with some of the guys who want to write against the strong Calvinism. And it's been so long since I read those fellas, I've probably got that much stuff on my library shelf and It'd be wonderful to have it right here, and that's part of the frustration of living 1,300 miles from where I work, sir, in Florida. But uh, and I will, I will think about you in the snowbanks when I'm reading them in, in uh, January. But anyway, but anyway, <laughs> any, anyway, anyway, uh, uh, many of them, many of those authors end up somehow. <laughs> wittingly or unwittingly limiting the sovereignty of God. Now, let's just go real quick. Take a look at Psalm 104. Would you please? And I, and I didn't know that this question was going to come up, and I didn't know that this discussion was going to come up this morning. So I am fishing for this verse. Are you with me? Indulge me and see if I can find it. Maybe it's not Psalm 104. I was, I was just off by 11. I saw Psalm 115. And notice, and notice how all-encompassing. This, this is proof texting, but it's a verse that speaks to the issue. And it gets it. Notice how all-encompassing the sovereignty of God is. 
God's word of election, election occurred, occurred in eternity past, before, before the creation of the world. As long as, long as that's, that's one of the, one of the first times the word election has come up for a meaningful discussion, let's, let's just take a look at Ephesians 1, shall we please? No, not I try to do anything definitive with it at this point. But you'll, you'll see why they say the election inherently occurred in eternity past. According, According as he hath chosen us in him, him before the foundation, foundation of the world, that, that we should be holy, holy and without blame before him in love. So that choosing happened before the foundation of the world. And then, and then turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I don't, I don't ever, ever <clears throat> want, the, want end, the end of Romans to become, become mere theology. But I hope you have hope hope you memorized these verses. If you haven't, I hope you will. Uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8, I don't know where to start, start memorizing it. But, but um, let's, 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 I guess, I guess Romans, Romans 8, 28 might be as but a place places any and to work your way through the end of the chapter. I've, I've got a bunch of it committed to memory to sit down and just sit down out in order, order all the way through. I'm not sure I could do it. But notice, but notice Romans, Romans 8. 8. Let's, let's start in verse 28. We know, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Then them who are the called according to his purpose. For, for whom he did foreknow. He also, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might, might be the firstborn among men and brethren. Or over whom he did predestinate, whom he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. That's, that's as far as we need to go this morning. But notice... That predestination, verse 29, occurred in eternity past, apparently simultaneously with election. Let me tell you, tell you there are some who use predestination and election as synonyms. I believe they are two separate acts of God, both, both rooted in his sovereignty, both, both deliberate choices of his, I think election is that choosing to salvation. I think predestination is God's predetermining, just very literally, that those who are saved will be conformed to the image of Christ. It has to do with glorification. He has invariably fixed it. Those come to Christ will ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. Or glorification. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I I remember for a little bit. I remember hearing someone recently last spring or somebody talking about verse thirty of the um and saying that this is necessarily that verse is necessarily an order to this in itself. No, no. But it, but it does set it out in an order. And that, and that it that it's that that's let's put it this way. That's, that's all it's intended to be, I don't think so. Okay? And and, and it it is not complete, Brother Chip. There, that is that is very clear. There are other pieces. Where does justification fall in here? Where does, where does uh, justification is in there? But where does where does, uh, where does where does sanctification fall in there? Where does the whole, the whole gamut of our salvation does not fall in there. So, so it is not complete, and I'm not trying to advance it as complete. What I'm trying to say is there is at least a sketch here. Okay? And hang with me, because after, after we get done with this section where I'm introducing it, I'm going to give you my own orders, order, order, order of salvation, I'll speak English. And, and, um, and, and you can, you can shoot holes through me when we're done, Okay. Yes, ma'am. Can you just restate what you said about predestination? 
Yes, yes, and we will. We're going to deal with it in detail. I believe, I believe that predestination, whom he did foreknow, and then he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, predestined to glorification. Now, now, Shailene, I, I, I'm not just on one verse here. Okay, right. Let me read you. Let, let me read you Ephesians yeah. chapter 1. And, and Paul, Paul uses a different term. But I believe, but I believe he's identifying the same thing when he, when he says in Ephesians 1 and verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Okay? So here he says we're in, in Romans 8, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, Ephesians 1, we are predestined to the adoption of children. Back, back to Romans 8. Notice what the adoption is. Romans, Romans 8 and, and verse, verse 23. And not, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even, even we are ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, what is, what the, is the adoption? Redemption for our body. So when, so when Paul's talking about the adoption, not only do we have, have the adoption of sons, not only are we now in the family of God, but the adoption looks forward to the redemption of our body, to ultimate glorification. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, Romans 8. We have been predestined to the adoption, Ephesians 5. But he's talking about the same thing. Let me say, say, pardon me. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, let me, let me, let me say one other thing and I'll get to you, Nate. There are, there are a bunch of very good men whom I believe underuse Romans 8.29. Because, because they, they will refer, they, he did predestinate us to be conformed to the image of his son. And I, and don't, I don't know if Jim Berg does this, and I know Jim Berg, and I have incredible respect for Jim Berg, and what he's done with changed into his image, and, and all of his writings, and others have done the same thing. They, they take, if, if Berg does it, I don't remember, they, they take Romans 8.30, God's intent, God's purpose is that we be conformed to the image of his son, and that means sanctification. Following? I don't think Paul is talking about sanctification there. Second, Second Corinthians 3.18, and that's the verse that is Jim Berg's key verse for the whole change in his image, book study series and everything else. You can go to the bank on it. It, it, is, it, is, it is really, really good material. But, but for whoever uses, and I know there are a number of men who do, and uh, they're good men. I just, I just think they're not using Romans 8.29 to its full intent when they say it's God's purpose that we be conformed to the image of his son. It's, it's sanctification and me becoming like Christ, part of God's plan. Oh yeah. I just think other verses say it. And this is saying something else. Okay, so, so I, that's only I want to pick on that bone. But, okay, let me. Uh, basically, this is just for my understanding. Um, Typically, I hear a lot of people say when they use the word, you know, use adoption, it's more of a salvific term. And listen, um, listen. We have a whole, whole section on adoption. And, and it is not just. just. And, and, and it is and a, salvific a salvific term here. here but here, but here Paul, Paul is, is looking at the ultimate end of, a, of adoption. Are you following me? And when, and when, when we get when we get to Galatians one that we might receive, receive the adoption of children and we cry Abba Father we have access to the Father and communion with the Father today that's part of adoption too, right? right. So it's, it's not the initial I guess choosing of salvation it's the ultimate glorification of that's that's what Paul's talking about in Romans eight twenty three and and. Adoption, Adoption is God's word of making us part of the family. 
Okay. There are many verses, and I don't want to jump ahead and do the adoption section now. Let's take a look, a quick look at Galatians 1, can we? Just as long as you've raised the issue, well, Galatians 4, excuse me. And, and watch, let's just start in verse 4. You hear, you hear this verse a lot at Christmas. You ought to hear it more than at Christmas, but you're going to hear it at Christmas. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now watch where adoption goes. Because your sons, God had sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, so then and then he says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son and a son and heir of God through Christ. So here Paul is talking about the present reality that we are adopted into the family. We can come to the Father and call him Papa, Abba, Daddy. We can be intimate with the God of heaven. Through the spirit of his son who dwells within us. Notice even here, he's looking at the end of it because we're going to be an heir of God through Christ. There is an ultimate reality to this. Romans chapter 8, his emphasis is more on the ultimate reality. We're here, it's on the ultimate realization. We're here, it's on the present reality. Okay? So both are involved. Now, now we've just about we just about skipped the whole section on adoption when we get there because it's short, short. But you will have forgotten all of that by then. So okay. Okay. Anything, anything else? Any other any other questions? All right. So let's keep working here. Did that did that satisfy you? That this is sketch. Okay. That's all. That's all I needed to be. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So on letter B under Q. I don't know how to head it. No, no, occurs in history at the time the gospel is preached. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have decided this first out a whole lot. But 2 Timothy 1 9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow, oh, wow. So, are you going to address the calling? We are going to. When we get to regeneration, we get to the issue of conviction. We will deal with calling. And you have just raised a wonderful point that I don't think, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't think I have addressed, Casey. All calling clearly is equated with the convicting work. And that's what my emphasis in this statement is. And that in the sovereign plan of God, it's part of the. Part of the purpose of God as well. Second, Second Timothy 1 9 is, is there. Okay. So, all right. So that's, 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 I made, I made this statement last night down at Marquette to somebody in a personal conversation. The, the translators of the King James Version in, in their preface called the translators to the reader if you've never read that I would urge you to read it that's another story altogether but they make make the statement in there that only the apostles and apostolic men had the privilege of infallibility and that means that warrants didn't okay so I did not get the full scope of all the calling that was that statement I hate to admit that but that's You don't, you don't mind me speaking with my tongue in my cheek, do you? Gotta got be able to poke fun at yourself. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, ma'am. I can't. I have a hard time. With well, I don't know. Sometimes. Yeah, I <laughs> you have, have to say, oh, I need to speak English. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I have a hard time with one tongue. I just get ready to say. All right. All right. Calling, calling occurs in history at the time the gospel is preached. And, 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 we will, we will see, see that in numbers of places. In fact, in fact, it's implied in Romans 8. Whom, whom he uh, did foreknow, then he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, over whom he did predestinate, whatever you do, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. 
And it's in that sense that I'm using calling in my statement, all right? And I did not get the full orb of, okay, all right? Good. Thank, you. Thank you for pointing that out. Right? Right? Just Justification clearly, clearly follows calling, calling and occurs at the time of faith. Read 321 through 76. Glorification, glorification is a future event for the believer. Now, in terms of repentance, faith, a whole bunch of terms, not in the Roman V. So we're using, so we're using it only as a scope, as a, as a sketch. Scripture does outline a sequence in salvation. Some of this sequence is time-oriented. Some of it is God's work in eternity past. Right? We will establish, we establish the biblical truth, truth that the events which occur when a sinner trusts Christ occur simultaneously. Our, Our minds, minds grasp them in logical, logical order. Let's get on the right spot here. Our minds, minds grasp them in a logical order. But it's, but it's a mistake to separate them into a temporal <coughs> order. For, in, for instance, regeneration and faith is just one of those places where we can talk about that. Right? All right? Now, now the, the substance of the Lord of Salutis. How far will we tell you what, what it's eight eight after. Let's, let's just mark number C. There is the place where we are going to begin. And, and if Lord Gary carries, see you Friday, Friday morning. morning. Yeah. Friday's a class casual day. Yeah, I said it. It's not. I said it. does Southern, Southern boy, when you when you park coming with him, he will often say, "I see you here, there, here, and in the air."